If you would open to John 19. John 19. Some of y'all don't know, we've been studying John for uh, since 2016, so we're not exactly in a hurry. Um, I want to get finished with John by the time all our kids are, uh, before they're out of the house. Um, so hopefully we can do that. Uh, we're going to start in, uh, we'll only be looking at verse 28 and 29 today, but I want to move back to verse 17 and give us some context. John 19, verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. And so, Lord, now we know You are resurrected and alive, but this moment of Your life was the hinge point in which history turns. Everything depended on this moment and what You accomplished. And Lord, we pray for our own minds right now. There's nothing more important for us to think about than this. There's nothing more important for us to love and to treasure than this. Everything for our temporal and eternal benefit And joy and life depends on this. And so Lord, we ask for the grace and the help to think deeply and rightly uh, about what happened on this cross. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we uh, get back into the Gospel of John, uh, the plan for the next two weeks is to look at the crucifixion 
Uh, that'll lead us up to Good Friday. That's why we wanted to get back right in this moment. Spend two weeks on the crucifixion, and that'll lead us right up to Easter uh, for the resurrection that we'll be looking at in the Gospel of John. Um, before we get back in this uh, text, let me just start. I think every church should do this every once in a while. We should just stop, pause, and say, what type of church are we? Uh, what is our identity? And depending on who I'm talking to when I get a question like that uh, would determine what answer I might give. But if somebody wasn't interested in theological particulars, but they wanted to know, what are, what are you really about? Uh, my answer would always be Christ. Uh, and more specifically, Christ crucified. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But then he said right after that, to the mature, we do impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God. Not meaning uh, for the mature people, we move away from Christ, but meaning there is more wisdom and power and glory in Christ to go deeper into more wisdom uh, to draw out of Him. Um, as city group leaders, one of the things that we do every time we meet is we, uh, we look at Ephesians 4, and particularly the, the phrase that talks about growing into the full stature and measure of Christ. That's what this church is about. We don't read a, a, a statement of faith that we wrote out or something. We read those words that the church is to grow into the full stature and measure uh, of Christ. Um, that, that is the aim. A few weeks ago, somebody, uh, somebody I respect said about our church that they thought our church was a healthy church. And as I talked to them, uh, I, I kind of was able to feel out what they meant by that compliment. Um, they meant we're not easily swayed theologically, where we fall into heresies and, and false doctrines. Uh, we're not easily uh, given over to political causes or cultural uh, things, although we're not scared to speak into those. We don't get fixated on those. Uh, we don't reduce the church down to mere affirmations of creedal statements or confessions. Uh, the church is more than an affirmation of a correct doctrine. Uh, we don't send missionaries and, and do missions as the ultimate aim of the church, although it is the mission of the church. It is not our ultimate aim. Even loving one another isn't why we exist although we love one another. Uh, it is always Christ. It always must be uh, Christ. Paul said in Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the Apostle John gave us a, uh, a thesis statement for these 21 uh, chapters in the Gospel of John. He said this, in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 30, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So that's why we gather, that's why we're studying this book, that's why we gather on the Lord's Day, to remind ourselves Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we have life in His name. We need Christ. We come to the table, we remember, we need Christ. We sing, we remember, we need Christ. We pray, confess our sins, remember, we need Christ. The whole, the whole gathering is supposed to just throw us upon Christ, put all of our hope back on Christ. 
If that's not what it does for you, focus more. That's what it should do for us. Uh, that's, that's the intended purpose uh, of, of the church. Uh, Christ is our head, we are the body, uh, the Scripture says. And I know a lot of people will go, Amen, Pastor, that's true. Uh, Got to keep our eyes on Christ. And what they mean by that is, we need to then stay in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because that's where Christ is. Or we need to stay in the New Testament. Because that's where Christ is. And I would like to just remind us that is an incredibly truncated biblical hermeneutic, to use the technical terminology. In other words, Jesus would have rejected that way of Bible interpretation. He, he did not believe that or teach that to his own disciples. Uh, rather, he said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures, that is the Old Testament ones, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. He said after that, if you believed Moses, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And then after the resurrection, Jesus has the same Bible study with the same men, making sure they understand this. And in Luke 24, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus believed the whole Bible is about me. He believed that and he taught that. And, uh, and so even like we studied uh, last week, Job, the book of Job, we didn't talk about, because we were talking about some other things, how that whole book is about Jesus. And it really is. And, and Job is a type of Christ. And you think about his friends rejecting him. That's symbolic of uh, the Jews rejecting Christ. You think of his wife, who could represent Israel, wanting nothing to do with him and forsaking him. That reminds us of Christ. The false accusations cast upon him. The suffering in he was blameless and didn't deserve it. Yet he remained and kept his integrity. Job is a type of, of Christ. And you go, okay, that's, I agree with that. But what does that have to do with our text today? Um, here's how this relates to our text. Jesus, in our passage, hanging on the cross, is quoting the Old Testament Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and saying, I'm fulfilling those passages right now. He believed on the cross with his words and actions, he was fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies. And so we're going to come to that in just a moment, um, but I want to walk us into this moment. I think we need to re remember uh, what led up to this and not all of his ministry, but that day, that Friday. Because a lot happened on Friday. In fact, for the last year, all we've studied in the Gospel of John was happening on Friday. Just Friday. Which started in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is agonizing in prayer. Uh, Jesus is anticipating what is going to happen later that day. They come and arrest Him with torches, weapons, huge six, eight hundred Roman soldiers come and arrest him, bind him, take him off to six trials. And let me give us some of the, the timeline of this. This is 3 a.m. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, is arrested around that time. 4 a.m. comes before the three Jewish trials. Three Jewish trials. These are illegal trials because they're happening in the middle of the night. And then after those Jewish trials where he's falsely condemned, he's then sent to the Roman courts 
And 6 a.m., he begins these Roman trials before Herod and, and Pilate, and they declare him innocent. There is no justifiable grounds to kill him, according to Roman law. Um, and uh, hand him over to the Jews. The Jews say they want to crucify him, and the leaders allow for it. And Jesus carries his cross at 8 a.m. Uh, through the streets of Jerusalem, up the hill of Golgotha. And the first of six hours on the cross, the first three hours begin to happen at 9 a.m. The soldiers are dividing up his clothing. From 9.30 to 11 a.m., you hear the taunts from people, the mockery. Uh, as Jesus hangs there, people uh, saying, you say you're the Son of God, take yourself down from the cross. And then Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's talking to the thieves during this time. He's speaking to his mother and to John during this time. We spent four weeks on that. All of that is in that first three hours on the cross. It says then a, a, a transition happens with the last three hours on the cross where it says darkness covered the face of the earth. Darkness co covered this region uh, for this last three hours on the cross. And it is in that last three hours and at the end of that last three hours that we pick up in verse 28. So let's look at this and read it again. After this, Jesus knowing all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so, he, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. That phrase, I thirst, is the fifth of the sayings of Christ on the cross. Uh, the fifth. And I want to draw out from it three meanings. Um, three meanings. Uh, I believe this has more than one meaning. I believe it has at least three meanings. And that should not surprise us with John. We've studied John so long. I hope we have got this by now. John has multiple meanings when he says things. Like water. You need water. And he doesn't just mean you need a drink because you're thirsty. He's talking about something spiritual. Wine. He doesn't just mean you need wine. He means something beyond that, spiritual. Bread. He intends something more to be understood by bread, right? He, this is how John speaks to us and how Jesus speaks to us all through the Gospel uh, of John. So it would actually be surprising if when Jesus says, I thirst, he didn't have something more intended than just, I'm thirsty. Okay? Uh, um, so I want to draw out three Three layers of meaning uh, that are meant by this, this thirst. The first would be physical suffering. I'll just name them and we'll, we'll walk through them. Physical suffering. Uh, layer two of meaning is historical fulfillment. And then layer three is physical agony. And I want to start with the physical suffering. Uh, I'm sorry, the third layer will be spiritual agony. Um, but let's, number one, first layer of meaning, Christ's physical suffering. Um, this is the first thing you notice. I don't know how you could miss it. He's physically suffering. And he's physically suffering the worst suffering that any human has ever had to endure. 
He is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the archetypal human sufferer. He is the chief human sufferer, the ultimate human sufferer. We know every culture and civilization since the time of Christ that has any influence of Christianity has grabbed a hold of Christ as their encouragement in their own suffering. No matter how, how bad suffering gets, everybody points to Christ as the ultimate sufferer. And he was. Um, he didn't just have a taste of human suffering. He had the full measure of it. And so when we say things like, I'm thirsty, we might, it might even be wise to create a new category for what that means if Jesus was also saying, I'm thirsty, because they're not the same thing. I, I can dare say none of us have thirsted like, like he thirsted. Uh, there, there's a film, maybe some of you have seen, in 1987. It was called The Empire of the Sun. And um, it's a vivid de- depiction of thirst. Because there's a young boy of a, of a British soldier, this is uh, during World War II in China, and this boy's parents are left and he's, he's trying to fend for himself, and he goes back to his very wealthy estate, this luxurious home that he lives in, and his, his parents are gone and he's there by himself, and the food is gone, the, the swimming pool outside is dried up, and he's there alone, and there's a scene where he's in the kitchen and all of the... Uh, all of the, the cups and bowls and everything are out. All of the cans are open and everything's laying there. And he can't find even a drop of water. He's so thirsty. And that type of thirst doesn't even begin to get into more extreme types of thirst. Medical experts uh, describe that when real thirst or dehydration sets in, the mouth begins to dry out and become caked and coated with a thick material. Lips become parched and cracked and the tongue swells. The eyes recede back into the sockets and the cheeks become hollow. The nose lining cracks and can cause nosebleeds. The skin hangs loose on the body and becomes dry and scaly. The bladder is burning. The the lining of the stomach uh, begins to dry out. And dry heaving, even vomiting, can begin to occur. Body temperature elevates. Brain cells dry out and cause convulsions. In certain cases, uh, the respiratory tract dries out and thick secretions uh, clog the lungs and cause, uh, can cause death. Um, these symptoms in Jesus' case would have been heightened with the, with the speed in which he began to uh, receive some of these uh, symptoms because of the torture, the, 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 uh, the extreme pain, the, the carrying of the cross, hanging from nails in the middle of the sun, uh, outside of Jerusalem that day. The human body, as you all know, is about 60% water. The blood, 92% water. The brain and muscles, 75% water. Bones are about 22% water. And once our bodies lose water, they can't replenish the water themselves. Jesus is quite literally, quickly dying of thirst as he hangs on the cross. Um, This has historically, uh, as everybody reads this passage and thinks about this, many of the Catholics historically have felt great pity for Jesus in uh, his thirst. Uh, For example, in 1946, Mother Teresa insisted to, she was speaking to a group of nuns called the Missionary of Charity, a religious order of nuns, 
And she said to them this, You exist to satiate the thirst of Jesus. And I'll I'll quote her as well later in this speech. She said, The general end of the missionaries of charity is to satiate the thirst of Jesus Christ on the cross for love and souls. And some uh, newer Catholic commentaries would say something similar that uh, Jesus Christ's thirst on the cross shows He needs us. Like the Roman, like he, Christ needed the Roman guards in that moment to satiate His thirst. And I'm quite sure that it means the opposite of what they're saying. Uh, Jesus in His dying moment of thirst isn't calling to us in 2023 to satiate His thirst by helping the poor. Um, I I know this stuff motivates for humanitarian efforts. Uh, I'm sure that's very motivating to people. It's just not what it means. Um, And so Jesus, in this dying moment of thirst, is, please understand this, He is dying physically for sin. That's what He's doing. And He doesn't need your help. He's helping you. That's the whole point of the cross. He's helping you. You aren't helping Him. He is not in need of your help. He's suffering for you. One old commentator said, the tongue of Jesus Christ underwent its own particular torment in order to atone for the ill use of man and His own tongue with blasphemy and evil speaking and vanity and lying and gluttony and drunkenness. That's what He's doing. That's why He's suffering. Uh, Verse 29 mentions what they give him in his uh, thirst. They, they give him sour wine, it says. And this is the big question with the sour wine that everybody wrestles with. Uh, was the w- sour wine a sign of sympathy? These guards who were just torturing him a moment ago, are they now feeling some sympathy and giving him the sour wine uh, as an act of sympathy? Or uh, was it for further torture? Uh, and there are a lot of opinions, and I won't linger on this longer than we need to, but... I believe Psalm 69.21 gives a clear answer. It says this, and this is a messianic psalm about Christ. Psalm 69.21 They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 69.21, a messianic psalm, and that's Hebrew parallelism. That's how we understand Psalms and Proverbs, the Hebrew parallelism is helpful. They're paralleling two statements to help us understand the meaning. And so, poison they gave for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Is sour wine an act of mercy and sympathy if it's paralleled with poison? doesn't sound like it. Uh, It sounds like the sour wine is an extension of the suffering not an alleviation of it. Um, This is, by the way, different than earlier on in the the crucifixion narrative when Christ is sitting there. They offer him uh, something to drink, vinegar and gall, it says. It's medicinal. I do think that was to ease the suffering, but Christ rejected that. And this is later on that day, hanging on the cross, and he receives this sour wine, uh, I believe, because it was not alleviating any of the suffering. Matthew Henry said, when they scourged him and crowned him with thorns, he didn't cry, oh my head, oh my back, 
But now he cried, I thirst. And I believe that means there's a deeper meaning than just the thirst. Which leads us to the second layer of meaning. A historical fulfillment. So look back at uh, verse 28. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture. You see that in parentheses? To fulfill Old Testament Scripture, He said, I thirst. So Jesus seems to be 100% aware that everything except His death and resurrection, which are coming in just a few moments, has already been accomplished. And that now, uh, He's in the very last moments. That is, all of His life, He has been obeying those 613 commands of the law. He's done it. Without any moral violation. All of his life, he's been fulfilling 355 messianic prophecies about himself. Some of those given hundreds, if not thousands, in some cases, years earlier. Which statistically, if eight, because there's 350 messianic prophecies, if only eight of those prophecies were fulfilled, that would be a 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So, uh, 17 zeros after. If 48 Messianic prophecies were fulfilled, that would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros after the probability of him just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. He fulfilled 355 Messianic prophecies, which could only say, They're about him. And they're about him just living his life. And they're depicting and describing all these elements of his life. And it says, Jesus knowing all that was now finished. So everything in human history leading up to this, going back before the creation of the world, leading into the Garden of Eden where that first promise was made, someone, uh, uh, one will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. From that moment, all these prophecies... Everything from the announcement that he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 and its fulfillment in Matthew 1.18. He'd be of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22.18 and its fulfillment in Matthew 1.1. The lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7 and its fulfillment in Romans 1.3. Him being born in Bethlehem, predicted in uh, Micah 5.2 and its fulfillment. The flight to Egypt, Hosea 11 and its fulfillment in Matthew 2.14. Every important detail in his life was predicted and then fulfilled in the life of Christ. Let me just remind us of a few others. Just let these enter into your mind. The betrayal of a friend, Psalm 41.9. Disciples forsaking him, Psalm 31.11. False accusations before judges, Psalm 35 and Isaiah 53. Formal acquittal, Isaiah 53.9. Being numbered with transgressors, Isaiah 53.12. Crucifixion, Psalm 22.16. That is before, uh, hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. Mocking of the onlookers, Psalm 109.25. Specific taunts about him saving himself, Psalm 22.7 and 8. Soldiers gambling for his clothing, Psalm 22.18. Prayer for his enemies, Isaiah 53.12. Forsaken of God, Isaiah, or Psalm 22.1. His thirst and his cry, 
Psalm 69:21, yielding up his spirit to the Father, Psalm 31:5, bones that are not broken, Psalm 34:20, and burial in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53:9. That's just a few of those 355 messianic prophecies. The sovereign precision, guys, the sovereign precision in which Christ fulfilled this is making clear there is no plan B. He doesn't operate off plan B. This is all plan A. Think about what he said. He goes to John at the moment of his baptism and John says, I can't baptize you. And then Jesus says, it's necessary that I fulfill all righteousness. Mary said to Jesus at the wedding at Cana, right at the beginning of his ministry, uh, do this and have, make sure that he does this. And he goes, woman. Which wasn't disrespectful. The hour has not come. He knew the timeline. He knew everything that had to take place. He knew he had to become the spotless Lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world. And, and, and here's what's amazing about this. He, doesn't, he isn't born with his brain like a hard drive and all these prophecies just already programmed in there. He actually learned them. He actually memorized the prophecies so that he could fulfill the prophecies as a human. He didn't cheat in how he did this. He learned as a man. He grew in wisdom, the Scripture says. And he knew at this moment on the cross, there's another one that has to be fulfilled right now. He looks down and sees the sour wine and says, I thirst, so that they would give it to him and the prophecy be fulfilled. That's the precision. That's the sovereign providence of God and how all of his life was coming to pass. And so I think that that uh, sour wine is, a, again, a fulfillment of six, uh, Psalm 69.21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. I think there's no question that's a fulfillment of that prophecy. But I want to point out Psalm 22 as well, where he says this in verse 14. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I believe that is also happening at, at the cross in his thirst. That prophecy is being fulfilled. Uh, the reason why many people think Psalm 22 is being fulfilled is because other elements of Psalm 22 are fulfilled on the cross as well. For example, the, the, the gambling for his clothes was the fulfillment of Psalm 22. That was happening in verse 24 of, of John 19. Uh, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something he said earlier. Psalm 22, 1. Um, I actually, uh, in your bulletin, you probably see that the title of my sermon uh, was uh, A Worm, Not a Man. And that's a that's a phrase from Psalm 22. A worm, uh, not a man. And I decided to go a little bit different route today, but I think it's important to remember how much of Psalm 22 is actually being fulfilled right now. Some people talk about Isaiah 53 as like a, theolo a theology of Christ's suffering. Psalm 22 is a theology of Christ's suffering as well. It's a depiction of all that he's enduring on the cross. I'd encourage you to read that later. Spurgeon said this about that phrase about a worm. He said, There is a little red worm, which is nothing but blood when it's crushed. It seems all gone except a blood stain. 
And the Savior, in deep humiliation of his spirit, compares himself to that little red worm, emptying himself and all his glory on that cross. And, and here's why I want to point this out and linger here for, for just a moment. Things that Jesus is saying about his suffering, things that David said about his suffering, and things that Job said about his suffering are almost identical descriptions of suffering. And all three of their descriptions of suffering. Uh, you see, interestingly and kind of shockingly, this worm description. Uh, again, David says, I'm a worm, not a man. Job in his suffering five times uses worms. So Job 25.6 says, How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Similar idea to wormwood we see often in Scripture. And it, it talks about hell as a place where the worm does not die. Revelation or I'm sorry, Lamentation 3 says, Remember my affliction, the wormwood and the gall. And so what, what's the point of all this? That I think suffering at its worst is being described as gall, bitterness, worm, suffering, death. This is beyond really what we can understand, some of these descriptions. Uh, Cecil Francis Alexander in an old hymn said this, his are the thousand sparkling rills that form a thousand fountains burst and fill with music all the hills, yet he says I thirst. All fiery pains on battlefields, all fever beds where sick men toss, are in that human cry he yields to anguish on the cross. There's a fulfillment of Scripture, there's a physical suffering, and then most importantly, I believe, is this third layer of meaning in, in his thirst is a spiritual agony. A spiritual agony. Humans are thirsty people. To be human is to thirst, not just physically, but spiritually. Uh, the verb thirst, or to be thirsty, is found five times in the Gospel of John. I just want us to hear how the word is used in John. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Listen, he who believes in me will never thirst. John 7.37-38, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, the streams of living water will flow from him. And then he explains what he means by this. He says, Jesus says, by this, he meant the Spirit whom those who would believe in him were later to receive. The thirst, the quenching of the thirst related to the Spirit. And then remember the woman at the well in John 4. Whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst again. Never. Remember the context? What That woman's on how many marriages? How many marriages did she have? Four, five marriages? She's on her fifth? There's a thirst, Jesus says. Something, something in you should be showing you, woman. You've got a thirst there. The, the, getting the right husband isn't going to fix this. I've got a water that will quench that thirst that no right relationship or right man is going to fix for you. And look, this is everywhere in our world. Everywhere. 
Why the the consuming desire to acquire wealth and achieve status in this world? Why, Why the mad rush for pleasure and entertainment? Is it not exposing this inner thirst? Many think that luxuries, cars, houses, exotic foods, experiences will satiate that thirst. But why is depression the highest among the wealthy even more than the poor? Many think success and popularity and the praise of men will satisfy the thirst, but celebrities who have all of that are some of the most miserable. Many think sexual gratification will quench it. It never does. Others try alcohol or drugs to drown it out, but the next day they know it doesn't work or fix the problem. Others think, once I get the right relationship, the right relationship, the thirst will be quenched. And Jesus says to this woman, it won't. I alone possess what will quench the thirst. And there's a lot of people that show up in church thinking, I know I need a little Christianity. That's going to help. But showing up at church is not quench thirst. Here's maybe the best way to explain this. Your thirst is a spiritual one. That's why natural things cannot quench it. Our souls are eternal. And so when you fill the soul with what is temporal and earthly, it cannot quench the soul which is eternal. It cannot satiate the desires that God has put in the human soul for what is eternal. It cannot do it. Our souls thirst for what is eternal. The temporal cannot, will not quench it. That's why Jesus can say to the woman at the well, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And notice, this is very profound what Jesus says here. This water called a spring, is called a spring of water. What does a spring do? When, When you drink my water, Jesus is saying, it makes a spring in you. A spring satisfies thirst, not because it removes the thirst forever so that you don't need water anymore, but by being there to drink from when you get thirsty again and again and again. The water that Jesus provides is even now in us, welling up, it says, into eternal life. Not because one drink is enough, but because one true drink produces a well for an eternity of drinks. Guys, I want, I want please hear this. If one satisfy, satisfies their soul in Christ, they will go on being satisfied and increasingly so for eternity. But if one rejects Christ and tries to satiate that thirst with all other things, they will go on being thirsty and in increasing measure eternally. This is what we call death. In City Group every week, uh, often speaking to the kids, we'll say, What is death? The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. And we'll say, well, what is death? What is hell? And one of the most popular answers 
that comes out is separation from God. Hell or death is to be separated from God. Now think about that. Why doesn't the believer experience that eternal punishment of separation from God? Answer, because Jesus experienced that on our behalf on the cross. He's enduring that for the believer on the cross. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the fulfillment of Psalm 63.1. Oh God, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The spiritual thirst is piercing Christ's soul with an indescribable pain. He is undergoing a horrifying reality of being separated from His Father. Who He loved more than anything. Uh, We can't comprehend what he's experiencing in this deep spiritual thirst and the pain of this thirst. We don't get that because we don't understand. We don't love the Father like he loved the Father. The thought of being separated from the Father for us doesn't seem so bad because we don't know how good it is to be united with the Father as Christ did. But the thought for Christ of being separated even for a moment is just the most intense pain, the worst of His human suffering. I mean, there's really, I would love to give illustrations here and try and help us get this at some level. You just can't. You can't can't begin to, if I try to compare losing a child, it just doesn't compare. The thought of a a parent losing a child, the, the pain does not compare. It does not do justice or begin to do justice for this. Think of Hagar. Um, I was studying that last week. Hagar is so hungry out in the wilderness. She's got her newborn infant with her, her infant son. And she's in the wilderness and she's about, she knows she's going to uh, die of dehydration and the child as well. So she puts the child off away from her so that she doesn't have to watch the child die. And you think, how horrible as a parent. The pain of that. That doesn't compare. That doesn't compare to what Christ is experiencing with the thought of losing His Father. This is an extreme, extreme emotion. The spiritual thirst of the cross is a type of hell. That's how we have to understand it. And that's, and I'm not exaggerating or coming up with that. I think Jesus himself described it this way. Uh, remember the awful words of the rich man Lazarus in Luke, 9, or Luke 16? He cried from hell, Jesus said. From hell he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in torment in the flame. The thirst that the man in hell is experiencing, he's like, give me, I will sell my soul for a drop of water. And then what is the answer? You will not get a drop of water. Not even a drop. You know, sometimes people describe going to war, the things that they experience at war, they'll say it was hell. It was hell on earth. And I haven't had someone say this to my face, but when when that day comes, I want to say to them, did you get a drink there? Did you ever get a drink? Even for a moment. Did you get a drink of water? 
even a sip of water. Because if you did, it's nothing like hell. In hell, there's no drinks of water. This is not, there's nothing we can experience that is like this. And many will go on thirsty like this for all of eternity. And Jesus, listen, Jesus knew the hellish thirst on the cross. Richard Sibb says, whatever was done to Christ shall be done to all who are outside of Him. But He endured the thirst of death, the thirst of hell, so that what? So that it would quench the fires of thirst for us, so that we wouldn't have to. Karl Barth said, Christ experienced the horrors of hell on the cross. We must not deny that Jesus gave Himself up for the depths of hell on our behalf, and in our place, in the place of all who would believe in Him. Listen to Matthew Henry. This is an incredible quote. He says, The torments of hell are represented by a violent thirst. In the complaint of the rich man who begged for a drop of water to cool his tongue, to that everlasting thirst we had all be condemned if Christ had not suffered even this thirst on the cross. See a connection. He took your hell. He took your hell on the cross. Here's my invitation um, for us today. It's Jesus' words. And they're glorious words if you hear them rightly. He said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Because he can take, he took your thirst for you and he also can offer you something. He says, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. It's an amazing invitation to anyone who would want to avoid what Christ endured on the cross. An amazing invitation to meet the thirsty Christ at the cross so that your soul will never go thirsty again. Christ suffered that thirst so we would not have to eternally, but we could eternally drink from that well of water of eternal life, satisfying ourselves in the very presence of God. Guys, as we go to the table, uh, that's what this table reminds us of. Remember when Jesus instituted this? He said, this should remind you of the kingdom. It should remind you of the kingdom I've come to set up. And remember how the kingdom is described in Revelation? You will never thirst. That's one of the descriptions. We'll never thirst. And I don't take that to just mean physically, but spiritually. You'll never long for those other things that can never satisfy you again. You'll be perfectly and eternally satisfied in Christ and in His kingdom. That's what the table reminds us of. Okay, This table can't do it for you right now. It's a reminder of the place you're headed where that will be done for you. Uh, let's come confidently to this table. Those of you who are baptized, have trusted Christ, received Christ, come to the table uh, believing that. Those of you who have not, in the bulletins, there's some meaningful prayers for you uh, as you... Uh, as you refrain today. Guys, take a moment. I want, let me just read this last quote before I pray. Hornatius Bonar said this, 
I hear the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down, drink, and live. I came to Jesus. I drank of that life-giving stream. My soul was quenched. My soul revived. And now I live in Him. Father, You did not have to give Your Son Jesus, You did not have to come and do this work and suffer these things, but You did because You love us. We know You took that other cup of wrath and You drank it on the cross. And You drank it on our behalf so that we would not have to be thirsty. We thank You that You offer to us a living water. And Lord, we say with so many before us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, we know the goodness of the water that You provide. Thank You for all that we have in Christ. Thank You for the kingdom that awaits us. Lord, as we come to the table, help our hearts to believe all of these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.